But as we uh, make a start, shall we, shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, our prayer this morning is that you would shepherd your sheep, that listening to your voice, feeling the, the work of your word, that we would feel secure, that we would know peace, all because of the great King whom you have sent us and who is soon to return. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my very favourite films growing up was this one. It's called Groundhog Day. Has anyone seen Groundhog Day? You must have seen it. It's an old film now. In fact, this Thursday was Groundhog Day, just passed. I don't know how you celebrate Groundhog Day. It's something to do with a gopher in a box. I never quite understood it. But if you've not seen this film, it's about a grumpy weatherman, played by Bill Murray, who for some reason is forced to spend the same day over and over and over again. So each morning he would wake up and it would be the same day he just had the day before. And he's the only one who, who realises this sort of weird phenomenon. So at first he, he does what you'd imagine. He presses this to his advantage. He does whatever he wants for no fear of consequences. So he sort of robs banks. He, he, uh, he goes around and just raids stores eating all the candy and all the cookies and all that sort of thing. He knows exactly what's going to happen when and where on this day because he's lived it so many times before. He can save the boy. He can get the girl. He does it all. But you'll know that in the end, this, this endless loop becomes depressing in the end. Because no matter what he does, he realizes he can't change anything. He, he can't find a way to break out of this constant cycle. He's just living the same day over and over and over and over. I begin with that because I, I wonder if how many of us feel that our Christian lives are a little bit like Groundhog Day. We're sort of stuck in a loop, making no progress, just spinning in cycles. So with our, our battle against sin, whatever that might be for you, just when we think we're resisting the lies of Satan, just when we feel we're making a little bit of progress, we regress. And we feel like we're just stuck in a loop. It may be the same way in, in some of our relationships, perhaps at a difficult marriage, perhaps uh, awkward relationships between us here. Just when we think we're making some progress, just when we think we're making some headway, suddenly we say something stupid or, or we do something to offend and it's two steps forward, two steps back. A bit like Groundhog Day, these, these cycles, they can get depressing, can't they? And we want to know, we want to know, how can we break out of this endless seeming cycle? How can we escape these self-destructive patterns? Will our strained relationships ever be restored? Well, according to our passage today, the answer is located in a tiny insignificant village five miles north of Jerusalem. As the Christmas carol goes, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see that ye lie, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in you tonight. 
if you've been with us throughout this series, you'll notice that our passage today is, is a sort of a microcosm of the whole book. Mike has pass, uh, packaged this kind of next section in three cycles, uh, three loops, uh, each of them moving from despair to hope, despair to hope, despair to hope. And you'll notice the focus of each oracle is a single, rather dubious female character. She is called the daughter of Zion. And she is the city of, of Jerusalem personified. The Hebrew word for city and daughter, it's exactly the same. So if, you, if, you, if this is the first time with this, allow me to give you just a, a brief potted biography of the daughter of Zion. The, the virgin daughter of Zion. She was once so beautiful. She was once so pure. She was God's pride and joy. She was, she was God's dwelling place. But by Micah's day, Jerusalem had turned into, if you forgive the biblical language, she's turned into a complete whore. She's abandoned God and sold herself to idols. She's abandoned wisdom and sold herself to enemy nations over foolish alliances. She's abandoned justice and sold out the poor in order to get rich. So we want to know what will happen to God's fallen daughter. What will happen to Zion? Well, you'll see from your handouts, the first oracle, it begins rather badly. She will be exiled. So first point, she will be exiled. Look down with me at verse 9 in your Bibles, if you would. Verse 9, chapter 4, verse 9. It says this. Why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your counselor perished that pain seizes you like a woman in labor? Writhe in agony, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. Jerusalem here is pictured like a, a woman in labor. She's, she's writhing in the, in the agonies of, of childbirth. Because in just a generation's time, the Babylonians are going to come and ransack her. And they're going to take all of her inhabitants off into exile. And notice these, these labor pains, they, they strike at the very heart of the people's security. Instead of dwelling in a city with high walls and defenses, now they'll experience the danger of camping in an open field. In, where once they enjoyed the presence of God in his holy temple, now they're going to be in Babylon, the capital of pagan religion. They're as far away from God as they can possibly imagine. In the uh, lead up to Chloe's birth two years ago, Hannah and I went along to these NCT classes. Did, I, did many of you do NCT classes? Yeah, a lot of people nodding. There's sort of mixed opinions about NCT classes, aren't there? A lot of people think it's just a bunch of hippie rubbish, whereas other people found it quite helpful. Um, I, I actually quite enjoyed it. So I, I learned how to be a useful birth partner at these, uh, these classes. I don't know why you're laughing. This is a very serious point. So in years past, of course, men would, um, they would wait outside the labor ward, wouldn't they? They would anxiously pace the corridor, not knowing what's going on inside. But these days, we're allowed in, we're allowed to be with our wives through the labor process. Uh, so we're, we're, we're there, and we can give them back massages. We can um, press the button on the TENS machine. Uh, we can help them with, with breathing exercises. But our NCT class leader, she said, no, the best thing you can do as husbands, the best thing you can do is give verbal encouragements. Say things like, Look, keep your eyes on the prize. Uh, again, this is serious. I don't know why you're laughing. Uh, she said, uh, each contraction 
say this, each contraction is just one closer to the baby coming. And uh, Micah here in verse 9, he's, he's verbally encouraging Zion in the midst of her labor pains. Because whilst her human kings and counselors, they're useless, they're, they're absent, her divine king and counselor, the Lord God Almighty, he is very much with her. So a bit like I'm supposed to do with Hannah in, in a few weeks' time when baby number two comes along, uh, Micah gets Jerusalem to look beyond the pain and focus on what's going to come after. So yes, she will be exiled, but then she'll be redeemed. So look back at verse 10 again. It says this, writhe in agony, or literally in the Hebrew, writhe and push, push, daughter of Zion, push like a woman in labor. For now you must leave the city and camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon, but there you'll be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. Do you see how the cycle has moved from despair to hope? Yes, there's going to be birth pains, but there needs to be birth pains if there's going to be a birth. There there will be an exile, but there needs to be an exile if there's going to be an exodus. There must be judgment in order for there to be salvation. Before we move on to the second cycle, let's, let's just pause here for a moment. Because there is good news for those of us here who, for whatever reason, feel distant from God. And for me, it's often, often my sin. Uh, my sin which can make me feel quite far away from God. Uh, the things I've done. The things I've said. The things I might let run through my mind. Maybe it's the things I've not done, which I know I should have. I know these things should disqualify me from being near to God. I know these things should exile me away from his presence. Maybe, maybe it's your sin. For others, it, the thing which makes us feel distant from God is our painful circumstances. We can sometimes ask ourselves, can't we, where is God at this time? I was meeting up with someone this week who said that very thing to me. In deep pain, where is God at this time? Where is our king and counsellor? He seems so absent. He seems so disinterested in the now. Well, here's good news for those of us who feel God is far away. For he is not. He is very much with us. If he's willing to redeem even the daughter of Zion, he must be willing to redeem me. If he's able to rescue her out of the distant lands of Babylon, he must be able to rescue me. But how? How is he going to do this? Well, let's move on to our second cycle now. The second cycle, again, it begins badly, but it moves around to hope. We read first that she is surrounded. She is surrounded. Look at verse 11 with me in your Bibles. Verse 11. But now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let her eyes gloat over Zion. If Micah were to be turned into a film, it would be rated 18 for graphic brutality. Jerusalem here is portrayed vividly as a vulnerable woman being surrounded by a gang of vicious men. They aim to strip off her clothes, gaze at her nakedness. They intend to rape her and defile her. They want to gloat over her ruin. 
Micah is describing here not the Babylonian exile, which would happen much, much later. No, he's describing here the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians. You can imagine the people in the city. They're cowering behind their walls. They're feeling naked. They're feeling vulnerable. Because all around them, surrounding the city, is this vast, vast horde. It's made up of the Assyrians and all their vassal armies. It's a sea of colour. All these different banners laying siege. And they are there for one reason. They're there to strip Jerusalem of everything valuable. They are there to defile the temple of her God. They are there to gloat over her ruin. One moment, the daughter of Zion is surrounded by enemies. But the next, she's being avenged by her father God. Look at verse 11. But now, many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let her eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. He who gathers them like sheaves for the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I will give you horns of iron. I will give you hooves of bronze. And you will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord. Their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Do you see the irony here? Assyria thought they were assembling to plunder Zion's wealth. But actually, it was God who was assembling them to plunder their wealth. A bit like a farmer bundles together wheat for threshing. So God gathers together all these rebellious armies in one place for judgment. In verse 13, it's a bit weird. Micah starts mixing his, his metaphors. A moment ago, Zion was this vulnerable woman, but now she's this enormous heifer with, with iron horns and bronze hooves. And, and these one-ton beasts, they were used to sort of trample down flour, uh, wheat into flour. And, that, and that's what Zion's going to become. God's people are pictured here treading their enemies underfoot, in, just pulverizing them. Now, this might sound to you really sort of fancy, poetic language. But do you know what? This is exactly what happened in history. You can go away to, uh, to read your history books, and you can go away and read 2 Kings 19. You can go away and read the, read the Greek historian Herodotus. And both inside and outside the Bible, they all say the same thing, that the siege of Jerusalem was broken overnight. Jerusalem woke up to find 185,000 Assyrian soldiers are all dead. The surrounded daughter of Zion was avenged by her father. Let me tell you a true story. I came across it recently. Tiani Butters was 19 years old when she got addicted to crystal meth. She was university educated. She was living with her parents in Melbourne, Australia. She she was trying, uh, training to be a nurse, and uh, she was introduced to, to the drug at, the, at a party, and she quickly got addicted, and so began this sort of downward spiral into addiction. Uh, she lost her place on the nursing course. She moved out of her parents and, and in with a drug dealer. She quickly began prostituting herself in order to pay for her habit. It seemed hopeless. But her dad did not give up on her. Uh, he was kind of frustrated with the progress the police were making. There were too many of these cases and the police weren't doing much. And So he quit his job and began spending his days 
patrolling the streets of Melbourne, hunting down his daughter, trying to find her. And eventually he found the place where she was staying. There was this dingy drug shack with an iron-bolted door. He went up to the squalid drug den and banged on the door and said, let me in, my daughter's in there. But the drug dealers refused. No, she's ours, she owes us money, she's staying with us. My father's here, what would you do if that was your daughter in there? Well, Tiani's dad went back to his car where he got an axe, true story. And he used the axe to hack his way through that door, swinging anyone who got in his way, picked up his daughter, threw her over his shoulder, and he got her home. Because nothing, nothing was going to stop this father from rescuing his daughter. Like Tiana Butters, we have a father who will do whatever he can to win back his daughter. Even though we are utterly culpable, he still wants us back. Even though we have powerful enemies, sin which ensnares us, Satan who who lies to us and wants us to see us defiled, plundered and, and, and broken, we have death who's always gloating over us, wanting to snuff us out altogether. We have powerful enemies, but our God is more powerful. And he will see to their destruction. And he will one day empower us to crush these enemies under our feet. Well, how will this be? How can that be? Well, let's move on to our third and final cycle, which begin, again begins badly. It begins with Zion being shamed. Look at verse 1, chapter 5. Micah writes, Marshal your troops, O daughter of troops. Again, same Hebrew word. Marshal your troops, O daughter of troops. For a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on a cheek with a rod. Once again, we're placed back at the siege of Jerusalem. But here we're given a slightly different angle on the events. This time, it's from the perspective of Jerusalem's king, King Hezekiah. And it's a humiliating situation for him. In uh, in 2 Kings 19, we read how the commander of the Assyrian army, he calls out to Hezekiah, mocking him. He says, look, we've got you surrounded, we've got you outnumbered. You're not going to win this fight. You've you've already lost, really. I'll tell you what, to make it more of a fight, let me me lend you 2,000 horses. 2,000 horses, just for you, if you can find enough soldiers to put on them. Marshal your troops, comes the cry. But that's the point. They don't have any. Zion does, though. She does have a king. She has a shepherd over the flock, a king who has a staff to gather his sheep and and a rod to batter away enemies. But here it's as if Assyria has stolen Hezekiah's rod and started beating him around the face with it. It's humiliating. See, daughter Zion, she might have had this marvelous history and, and heritage, but she did not have the resources within herself to break free of her captors. Uh, Tiani Butters might have had a wonderful background and education. But she was never going to get herself out of that drug den. And me and you, we might have a lot going for us. But we do not have within us 
the resources to save ourselves. We need someone to come from the outside to rescue us. So in verse 2, Micah promises that a greater king is on his way. Zion might currently be shamed, but one day she will be shepherded. Verse 2. This is the famous bit. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Notice here that, that Mike is he's no longer addressing daughter Zion like he has through the rest of this section. Instead, he's addressing a different place, a village, a, a tiny insignificant village it wouldn't have even been on the map here in Bethlehem a king would be born whose origins are from of old here the ancient would be made new but when when would this happen well like we heard from our first cycle there needs to be birth pains if there's going to be a birth Israel would have to endure centuries of pain and abandonment. But in the end, these labor pains would produce a savior. Look at verse 3. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. And then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Here, 700 years before the event, Micah not only predicts the birth of Jesus Christ, but also the whole purpose of his life, his death, and his resurrection. Unlike useless King Hezekiah being beaten around the face with his own rod, here is a shepherd who can actually protect us from our enemies. Here is a shepherd who, who will gather to God all those who were once far away. Here is a king who will win us security and life and peace forever. It's striking when we reach Matthew's Gospel where this passage is quoted that when King Herod and all of Jerusalem, when they hear of this king being born in Bethlehem, they're not delighted. We read how they're disturbed. They don't want a saviour from outside. They don't want a rival to their sovereignty. No, the people who saw Jesus' greatness were from the very ends of the earth. And when the Magi found Jesus, they bowed down and they worshipped him. And if you're here today and you realise that you have not within yourself the resources to save, I mean, who of us does? If you're here today and you realise salvation must come from outside, then today will be a great day to bow down and worship the king, the long-promised shepherd king. As we draw to a close, there's so many different ways we could, we could apply this material. But forgive me if I just focus on just two. 
uh, two areas I think we need to change our thinking. Firstly, I want us to know this. You need to know that the cycle has been broken. The cycle has been broken. When Tiani's dad went in and, and rescued her out of that drug den, axe in hand, what do you think he did next? Do you think he just found a, a random street corner and then deposited her? Oh, here you go, love. Off you go. You're on, your, you're on your own now. Is that what he did? No. He immediately took her home and he emptied his bank account of all the money he had. And he paid $15,000 to get his daughter the very best rehab money could buy. And in the same way, our father doesn't do a half job of rescuing us. He didn't send Jesus just to do 50% of the work and the rest is on us. You're on your own now. No. At the cross, the great shepherd crushed all of our enemies. The sin was dealt with there. Satan, his lies were exposed there. Their death was defeated once and for all. So friends, in the midst of your groundhog days, as the same old sins circle back around, remember they had no power over you. The crisis crushed sin. As you hear the same old lies, remember the lies are exposed because Satan has been defeated. As you struggle in the same relationships, remember to persevere. Because in the end, the king will gather us together in one place. The work the king has started, he will finish. So that wheel which goes round and round and round, well, Jesus didn't just stop it. He broke it. Friends, know the cycle has been broken. The second thing I think this passage should help us, I want you to realise that you can't have the baby without the birth pains. You can't have the baby without the birth pains. If you haven't already discovered this, and you will do at some point, you will suffer in this life. And especially so if you're a follower of Jesus. You will suffer. We will experience the most horrendous birth pains. But you need to know that beyond them is something wonderful. On the front of your service sheets, we put these verses from John 16. And, and uh, Jesus borrows the language from this passage in Micah. I want you to look at this with me. At the very front of your service sheets. This is what Jesus says, using this imagery of of childbirth and the pains of it. Jesus said, A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice And no one, no one, will take away your joy. There was once a Scottish preacher called Arthur Gossip. And in 1927, his wife, his young wife, whom he loved dearly, tragically and suddenly died. Some months later, somehow, he managed to return to the pulpit to preach. And when he preached, he preached a sermon called, When Life Tumbles In, What Then? 
And in that talk, he, he compared life a bit like to watching an aeroplane, which is flying overhead uh, during, in, in the sky during, during wartime. And there you are, you're lying on your back on the grass, and you're watching it fly gracefully through the air. The sun is shining, and it's a nice blue sky set against it. You're just watching the aeroplane fly across. When all of a sudden, it's blown up in the air. And you watch this beautiful airplane crumple and crash and fall into a twisted, tangled mess of metal. The preacher went on to explain that he didn't understand life. But what he did know is that during this darkest period of his life, he needed faith in this shepherd king more than ever. And he closed his sermon by addressing his his congregation directly. He said this, I quote, You people in the sunshine believe in the shepherd. But we in the shadows must believe in him. Because we have nothing else. For some of us here, I'm aware, hearing about this king being born in Bethlehem, it's nice. It's nice. Hearing about this future kingdom of peace and security, it's nice. But having spent my week with Christians who are suffering a great deal, I can tell you for them, these truths aren't just nice. They're absolutely necessary. So when suffering comes, and friends, it will come, please look beyond your labor pains and look to the new life that is set ahead of you. Jesus says, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and then you'll rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Let's pray. Great Shepherd, we claim these promises. We pray, Father, that in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our battles against sin, in the midst of our struggles to maintain our relationships lord thank you for the cross thank you for our king for all that he's done help us to look forward lord to his return and to the consummation of your kingdom and we all stand in jesus name amen